Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Woo-woo, yeah, woo. <laughs> uh, this morning, we are kicking off a new mini-series. We've been working our way through First and Second Corinthians throughout the year, and uh, we are starting a new one on the truth. And so you see these cards here uh, on your seats, and we will have these in digital format for our online uh, congregation as well. And on there, these are just resources to help us engage with this mini-series over the next five weeks. And so we've got a memory verse that we're gonna, I'm going to read in a moment. Uh, we've got series readings, so there's no dates on those. You can just read them at your leisure or leisure. What do you prefer to say? I don't know. Uh, but you can read it and just absorb uh, these texts uh, as well. Um, as what, Speaking of text, you can text your questions in, huh? Yes, uh, with this mini-series right there on the, on the card. And then uh, Travis will throw that number up on the screen. You can text message your questions uh, during the messages, after the messages, whenever, uh, and, and then we'll answer them at the end of these five weeks. We'll take a segment, compile as many of those questions as we can, and answer as many of them as possible, because the whole idea here is we're looking at Corinthians is it's complicated. It is uh, tackling issues that aren't always uh, simple and straightforward, and we may think we have a formulaic answer to it, uh, but it's going to provoke some thoughts and questions. And speaking of questions, we've got discussion questions, those of you that already flipped over. Uh, you saw the discussion questions each week. We've created some questions for you to engage with, and uh, if you're watching online, you can see those in the description of the video or take this card and uh, put it somewhere. Put that memory verse somewhere so you can memorize it and just allow that verse to, to soak uh, and, and to marinate in, in, and we're going to take a moment and read this together. Is that all right? Yes. Sweet. All right. The memory verse uh, for the next five weeks, and we will have prizes and uh, treasures in heaven for those that can memorize it. Second <laughs> Corinthians five nineteen through twenty. I'm going to read it, and then we will read it together. All right. United in verse. Here we go. For God. <clears throat> For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us, and we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. There's an exclamation point. Come back to God. There it is. All right. <clears throat> Amen. All right. So we're going to try to do this together as best we can, and anytime we try to do something in unison, it's always fun, uh, because you try to do anything in unison with more than one person, it's hard. Uh, so we're going to try to do this, and, and try, to, try to go our own way here through the, uh, through the memory verse. You guys ready? Yes? Come on, let the online viewers hear you, and the online viewers, we want to hear you. Wherever you're watching, if you're in your car, pull over. Uh, <laughs> But read, read along with your church. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. Ready, set. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There you go. Oh, you guys got louder at that last part. Very good. All right. I love that I could bail out, and you just took it. You just, like the current in the ocean, you just took it for a ride. I love it. 
So uh, over these next few weeks, uh, memorize that. You could post that somewhere and, and just let's, let's allow scripture to be at the forefront of our minds, not on the back burner on Sunday for an hour or an hour and a half. Let it be something we saturate in all week. So Ellie is now going to read another scripture because each week we've got a specific text that we're looking at. So Ellie, take it away. Yes, today's message comes from the following passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are saved or who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As these scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom sought that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it is all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Well done, Ellie. Good job. This is our first time being service host. Give her a hand, everybody. It can be intimidating to stand in front of people and pray and read and do all these things, so well done. Good job. Thank you for jumping in. Um, well, like I said, we are kicking off our new mini-series called uh, It's Complicated and, and Just Simply Truth. And last week was Easter. I, can you believe it's only been a week uh, since Easter? And I couldn't find any discounted Easter candy. I was super disappointed. It was a sad week in the Nolt home. Uh, my kids have troves of it, but I couldn't eat it. Uh, but last week was Easter. We spent some time talking about the simplicity of the gospel, even though it's complicated uh, for some, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the, the gospel in and of itself is a very simple message. Jesus came to earth to die for us, resurrected from the grave. We find life, we find forgiveness, we find eternity, we find hope, right? That's the gospel message that we focused on last week. And now, for the next five weeks, what we're doing is looking at that idea of the truth of the gospel, and what are the implications of making that the center of our lives? We talked about when we put the gospel at the center of our lives, it changes things. Well, what does it mean for us to put the gospel at the forefront of our minds or at the center of our hearts, at the center of our lives, and allow it to define us, allow it to uh, be the central thing that guides us? How do we not settle for a distorted version of the truth in a, in a world where truth is relative to the next person that you're standing next to? How do we uh, react when we live in a world that says the idea that there is the truth seems like foolishness. And that's what we're talking about today with this concept of the truth. And, and in the weeks to come, we'll talk about representing truth and being changed by truth and discovering truth. But, but today is about, we live in a world that would say what we believe, if you would call yourself a Christian, and I don't want to assume everybody in the room or everybody at home does, 
But if we would call ourselves a Christian, it means that we are defined by the gospel, meaning that we love Jesus, we've said yes to Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and forgives me of my sin, brings me in relationship with God, right? I believe, yes, hallelujah. We believe that, but we also know that we live in a world that says, that's ridiculous. How do we respond when we live in a world that says what we believe is foolishness. Because Paul, 2,000 years ago, about 50 AD, said the world thinks what you believe is crazy talk. Ellie just read it. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. This is what the world thinks. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed to destruction. But we who have been saved know that it is the very, it is the very power of God. Verse 21, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching, amen, hallelujah, our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Foolishness. What we believe is foolish. The Greek word that Paul uses is moros or moria, which gives us the base for our English word. Any guesses? Moron. The gospel seems moronic to people. When you don't believe in the gospel and you hear it, it sounds crazy. You believe in a God that sent his son to die for you. And, blah, blah, blah. and we're going to get into why they think it's foolishness, why they think it's ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. Might have just coined a new word there. Even Paul kind of sarcastically says it is by our foolish preaching. He's not calling the preachers foolish, thank you. But what he's saying is that people that hear preaching, they think what they're talking about sounds crazy. It doesn't make sense to them, and he's not slamming the content of the preacher, and he's not slamming the preacher, but he's just saying this is the way it's perceived by the world. And for some of us that have embraced Jesus, embraced the truth, how do we not flinch? When we live in a world that says, you crazy, you believe what? Why would you believe that? Because the outside world thinks that the message is foolish, the messengers are foolish, and the methods are foolish. How many of you feel that tension in our world today? A, a slight nod. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that there's more going on than just a slight aggression, slight tension, slight awkwardness when you're in your world with unchurched people talking about what you believe or they find out you're a Christian, right? They're going to think the message you believe in is foolish, the messengers are foolish, and the methods are foolish. You go to church on Sunday, why would you go to church? Why? Sleep in, man. You give your money to that, you go and give your time to that, you go do this, you believe that, you listen to that guy, what? It's foolishness. And Paul understands that over millennia, people have discovered and developed their own systems of wisdom. And, and let's take a moment and just think about, you've got human wisdom and God's wisdom in this conversation that, that Paul is bringing back and forth. And he understands that there is a, a portion of the population that has created their own philosophy, their own wisdom, their own mantras, their own meaning of life. Let's think for a moment, and, and this is where we can get a little more um, vocal, all right? It's not a library, 
We're going to take a moment. I want to, I want to hear from you examples of mantras or philosophies of meaning of life. Where do people find significance? Not what they find significance in, but they're like their philosophy on life, right? For some, it's, well, we got to care for the earth because we came from the earth. We're going to go back to the earth. So it's all about the earth and mother earth. Some say, well, we've got to accept everything because life is predetermined. Fate's already figured it out for us and we're just along for the roller coaster ride. Here we go. Some say the meaning of life is to become self-sufficient. Don't become dependent upon anybody else or to free yourself from pain. The goal in life, the mantra in life is, I don't want to feel any pain. I want out of pain, no pain. Some people love pain. And it's all about pain. No pain, no gain, right? They kind of Chuck Norris the thing. Like, I just bring the pain. Some, it's all about life is about the pleasures in life. And if it doesn't feel good, doesn't make me feel good, doesn't make me think good, doesn't make me say good, doesn't make me anything good, well, then it ain't good and I don't want it. What other mantras, what other philosophies, what other ideas do you see in our world today? Go ahead, you can just shout it out, go for it, or raise your hand if you want to be more, you know, reserved in that way, go for it. What other perspectives on life do you see in our culture? We're defined by our sexuality. Yeah, yeah. Love wins becomes a mantra. And we're going to talk about sexuality because Paul talks about it. Not this week, but we're going to talk about it later this year. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about that. But yeah, the idea of you do you. What, how do you see yourself? What is your truth? Love wins and love, you know, conquers all. So love is what it's all about. What else? Wealth. The goal and meaning of life is more. Gaining more. So many people. Oh, so many people are believing in that. Yeah, okay. What about just simply acquiring knowledge and wisdom? It's about, it's maybe not about the tangible things in life. It's just, can I understand it? Can I gain a logic and a reason, an understanding of these things? Can I comprehend and connect all those dots? For others, it's about being a good person. Like, that's their goal in life. If I can just be a good person, not hurt people, then I'm going to get what I deserve Life's going to be better. Fame or recognition, yeah? Desiring to be known, to be loved, to be affirmed. That drives us that if I feel alone, then I must not have it all. I must be missing something. Yeah. For some, over the ages, it's been about eliminating emotion, from our, our, our pursuits and from our, you know, that we can find and discover and, and, and some philosophies get into this idea of like eliminate all emotion and get to the purest form of knowledge and wisdom and insight because emotion is going to corrupt all that. So we got to discard all that emotion and feeling and all that mushy stuff and let's get down to the, to the core issues. Contending for the common good. You see people buying into that, believing that? What's good for everybody must be good for me, and if I can do something that, prevent, that benefits everyone, well, then that's the goal of my life. Maybe there's even some that say life has no meaning. And you, you don't have to raise your hand. But there are people in our world that would say, life is just going to end. 
When my lights go out, it goes dark, game over, I'm done. I don't respawn, I don't get a new shot at it, I don't go up in the heavens, I just, I'm done. So life has no meaning. And for some, that means life has no meaning, so do whatever you want. Just enjoy this moment. Good vibes only, that's one that I'm seeing a lot on shirts and bumper stickers and things like that, right? The, the mantra and the lifestyle of just, hey, just be positive and we want good vibes, baby. We just, we just want good vibes only and that's the way we're going to do it. And, and, and you have all of these different philosophies and human wisdoms and insights and perspectives and Paul is understanding that and they change and they adapt over time and get new words and new perspectives. But when that's how you define your life, when that's how you um, find meaning in life, it becomes very valuable to you very precious to you. And Paul is then confronting that with the truth of the gospel. And so what they held so dearly starts to feel absurd and foolish. But it's only, you know, it's in this comparison of the two that goes back and forth. And so in verse 19 and 20, Paul begins to frame man's truth with God's truth. And let's look at verse 19 and 20. As the scriptures say, I being God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. What's Paul saying there? He's saying you take all these mindsets and, and perspectives and worldviews and mantras and philosophies and all this, and we hold it so dearly and close to our hearts, and we allow it to guide us and influence us and, and inspire us in all these ways. But he says in the end, all of those human philosophies and human wisdoms are going to be proved foolish when you frame it around the gospel, when you frame it around something timeless, when you frame it around God's wisdom. And when reading this passage, it reminds me of a scene out of the classic movie Men in Black. And you see Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith sitting on this bench. And Will Smith has just learned that there's aliens in the universe, right? That is not a sermon for today, but that's what they're talking about on this bench. Don't text me about aliens because I'm not going to spend the time answering those questions. All right? It beateth me. That's what I had a professor always say. It does say text your questions underneath about Men in Black. Don't text me my thoughts on Will Smith smacking Chris Rock either. Anyways, but what you have is you have Tommy Lee Jones sitting on this bench with him, and he's explaining how human perspective changes over time once we start to learn new things. And in the past, it felt so right, but as time progressed, it starts to feel foolish. He says at one point so eloquently, he says, 1,500 years ago, everybody knew that the earth was the center of the universe. Now we know that that's ridiculous. 500 years ago, everybody knew the earth was flat. And there's a few of us still out there. <laughs> and he asked the question, imagine what you'll know tomorrow. 80 years ago, doctors knew it was healthy to smoke. 20 years ago, everyone knew dot-coms were a sure thing. Right? 20 years ago, put your money in it, man. Pets.com. This is Sean's spin on it. I've now deviated from Men in Black. Two weeks ago, everybody knew the Mariners weren't going to make the playoffs. But now we know. This is the year. Amen. Hallelujah. I got a witness. 
But that question, imagine what you'll know tomorrow. And I think that that kind of frames this idea. Paul's saying, everybody knew this is the meaning of life. This is what life is all about. And that generation after generation has framed it and changed it and adjusted it and come out with their own version of it. Because human wisdom is fallible and futile and is going to fail us at some point. And in the ultimate scope of time and eternity, it's going to look foolish. That's what Paul's saying. The greatest wisdom of man is going to look foolish in, in, the, in the framing of God's gospel. And so what Paul does is he's talking uh, uh, to the Corinthian church and he's talking about this idea of wisdom and foolishness and he begins to classify those that don't believe uh, in the gospel into these two groups, two skeptical groups. And you've got one group of people wants to see God uh, do something powerful. Man, I need a sign. And then you've got this other group of people, man, I will believe in the gospel if it fits within my scope of reason and logic. And we see that in verse 22 when he compares the Jews and the Greeks. And he's talking about people outside of the church, people outside of the gospel understanding of people that haven't believed. And verse 22, he says, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So that first group is the Jews. They were, they were demanding what? Signs, wonders. They wanted the power of God to resonate in that moment. And they thought, man, the gospel sounds interesting, but it's lacking power. We want power. We want a Messiah that's going to come and conquer this world and take over this socioeconomic status that we are in here. We want power. We want signs. We want miracles. They demanded that God fit within their paradigm of powerful God. They looked at the Old Testament and they saw what? A powerful God that parted the seas and brought about plagues and took over the world, right? And brought floods and all of this. And then they get Jesus. There's not enough power in the way that they saw it. Now, Jesus did miracles, and he did signs, and he did wonders, but what's interesting is he never did them on demand. Ever, when confronted by a crowd that said, give us a sign, he never was like, okay, sure, watch this, bam. <laughs> but you've got this audience of people, this paradigm of people that are looking to the gospel and saying, the gospel sounds interesting, but it seems to be lacking proof, evidence, signs. And I think that there's even people today, and many of us would agree, that are holding out for a tangible sign from God. There might be people in this room. No shame, okay? No condemnation here. This is a safe place to discover Jesus, encounter Jesus, have, a, have your questions be something that you can grapple with. That's what we're about. We're ordinary people following an extraordinary God together. But there might be people even right now in the room or watching at home that are saying, man, I am waiting for God to show up and answer this prayer. I'll believe once God does blank. Fill in the blank. God, you're waiting for God to do something. And my question is, what are you waiting for God to do? What is the thing that you're waiting for that will get you to believe? What's gonna be that tipping point for you? And, and, and in all honesty, and you don't have to respond verbally, if God did that, if he healed or provided or showed up or parted the heavens and spoke audibly, this is the Lord, if he showed up, boom, right here, is that what you're waiting for? 
would that really do the trick for you? Or would you hold out for another sign? Another miracle? Another moment where you're like, I need a little bit more proof, God. I need a little bit more. That's one group of people. But then you've got this other group of people, uh, the Greek audience that Paul was familiar with and preaching to constantly, and they listened to the gospel and they thought, it's illogical. It doesn't connect because it doesn't have a reasonable argument. The Greeks were thinkers. They were described as people who were zealous to learn all kinds of things, right? They had famous philosophers, as Bill and Ted said, right? Socrates. They had Aristotle. They had Plato. Socrates? No? No Bill and Ted's people in the room. All right. Socrates. But they had built these philosophies over generations of questioning everything and discovering and examining and asking these things to pursue the, the purity of wisdom and meaning and significance and what life is all about. And, and their whole mindset was on logic and reasoning. And then Paul brings the gospel. And think about how illogical the gospel sounds to this group of people. You're telling me that the meaning of life is some middle-aged dude that died in the Middle East? They're in Greece. Jesus died where? He didn't die in Greece. He died all the way over in the Middle East in Israel. You're telling me that that's the meaning of life? Some guy in his 30s gets executed, and that's what life is all about, the existence and eternity and everything? They were trying to force God into a box of their logic and their reasoning, and they had questions that demanded answers, and when it didn't fit their paradigm thought it was foolish, man. Why would you believe that? Why would you die for that? Why would you talk about that? And I believe that there are people today that are still trying to fit God in that same box. You've got questions. You're waiting for God to fit in your box. Why would God allow wars and suffering and difficulty and all of this that's going on and the devastation we see if God is so loving? I mean, you've heard this one. How could a loving God send people to hell? That's a hard one for people to wrestle with. You say God is all about love, but then he's going to send me to hell if I don't believe in him. They can't connect those dots. They can't see it, and so they hear the gospel, and what is their response? Much like the Greeks that Paul was confronting. He's saying it's foolishness to them. They can't comprehend it. They can't understand it. It doesn't fit in their box. It seems contradictory. And there might be some in the room, there might be some watching at home that would say, that's me. I'm waiting for God to answer my question. And I can't seem to text God correctly. <laughs> You've been wrestling with that question for a long time. And my question to your question is, will that really be the tipping point for you to believe? Or will there be another question? And another question. And it's not to diminish the questions that we wrestle with. I don't want anyone to feel like, well, Sean, I'm really wrestling with that question, or I'm waiting for God to answer this prayer and show himself in this. It's not to diminish that, but it's to really ask ourselves, much like the Jews and the Greeks that Paul is talking about, is that really going to convince you that this isn't foolish? And so how do we respond when we live in a world that says what you believe is utter nonsense, is moronic? 
And Paul answers that question in verse 23. Did anyone see it? He answered the question. What is the answer to somebody who views the gospel as foolishness? Christ crucified. Verse 23. So we preach that Christ was crucified and the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. That we believe and we share a gospel, a truth of a Messiah, a chosen one that was executed. That is the most dearest truth and good news that I hold on to. I believe in a God that died and came back to life. And to those two audiences, that sounds like an oxymoron. That seems like Seattle winning at anything. Right? That seems like Starbucks being a good deal, a discount. What? A crucified Messiah does not compute. You can have a Messiah, a chosen one, a savior, a God, and you can have a martyr, but they can't be the same person in their brains. They can't connect those dots. Because in those perspectives, it's all about ascension. It's all about climbing ladders to power and significance and, and right through wisdom and insight and knowledge or through power and signs and wonders and and, and 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 social ladders and all of these things it's all about ascending but Christ crucified is not about ascension it is not about elevating the truth of a crucified Christ is not about superiority what is it about it's about sacrifice it's about weakness it's about humility and that's where it becomes this oxymoron for people. You want me to believe in a God that shows a sign of weakness and humility and brokenness and sacrifice. But the next verse reveals in verse 24 that Jesus actually embodies the truth and power that we seek. In verse 24, but to those called by God to salvation both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice, Paul is bringing in the very verbiage and words and things that they're seeking for. These are the targets that they're looking to hit. Power and wisdom. And Jesus is what? Power and wisdom. Think about it. It may look like weakness and humility and sacrifice, and it is. It's, it, it's done through that. But the power of the gospel, the power of Christ crucified is what? He defeated death. He defeated sin. The miracle of the resurrection. Is there power in the resurrection? Absolutely. You try raising somebody from the dead without power. There is power. The power to unite people, Jews and Gentiles, two people on total social uh, polar opposites. And Paul says the gospel brings them together. That's power. So Paul is saying, it may look like foolishness, and they're looking for power, and they're looking for wisdom, but when you look at the gospel, you will see power, and you will see wisdom, because when you look at Jesus, you see a man through his teaching, and through his life, and through the way that he ministered, you see wisdom. He points us towards eternity. He points us towards significance. He points us towards meaning. He points us towards purpose. Look at Jesus, and you will find wisdom for life and how to live. And so what Paul is saying is the very thing that they're aching for and looking for, God, show me a sign. God, show me some wisdom. Answer my questions. And he's like, the answer to all of that is Christ crucified. Look at the resurrected Christ, and you will find the answers that you are seeking. And then the final verse in verse 25, this is where it challenges me and all of us 
to trust that maybe God knows a little bit better than we do. When he frames it and he says, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest human wisest of human plans, and the weak and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Because how many of us would sit there, listen to the gospel, wrestle with it for a moment, and say, Man, if I was in charge of saving humanity, I would have come up with a better plan. Anybody have a better plan for saving humanity? Now, let's think about, I know it seems like sacrilegious to even consider that, but when we are wrestling with the gospel, I think we're kind of answering that question for ourselves because how many of us would have said, let's bring Jesus onto the scene at a different time in history. Let's bring him not to this poor carpenter and this teenage girl in the middle of nowhere riding a donkey. Let's not bring him at a time where they don't have electricity. Let's bring him when he could do a TED Talk. Let's bring Jesus when he could go on YouTube and like, ah, loaves and fishes, everybody. Let's not do the resurrection at some little town, right, in the middle of nowhere at a time when only a couple people would see the resurrection. Let's do the resurrection, God, in Times Square, live streaming it to the world in the metaverse. I don't know what the metaverse is, but I like to just drop that in there. Because somebody knows what it is, and they would probably think that's the best way to bring about the resurrection of humanity. Why did he do it at the time and place and people involved in all of these things? And we sit here and we think, God, I would do it better. I would have a better plan. I wouldn't come in weakness. I wouldn't come in sacrifice. I wouldn't come in humility. I would come in power. I would come in strength. I would come in triumph. I would come in victory. I would come in knowledge. I would come with social influencing out the wazoo, baby. We would just, we would get this message out and everyone would believe and they would never doubt it. God, you picked some terrible methods to bring about the gospel. That's what we could sit here and think. And yet, verse 25 tells me, the wisest of human plans is foolishness. The best blueprint for the gospel to spread seems foolish in God's perspective. That God didn't choose to send us a king that came riding in on a tank. He didn't send us this God that like, came and, and infiltrated our social media and just took over and just like, breaking news, Jesus is born. Like, it didn't happen like that. God didn't come at the time that I would think was best. And this is where we have to, we have to really wrestle with the gospel in, 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 and learn to trust that maybe God's smarter than I am. And I'm saying that with a smirk because I don't think we would ever utter that out loud, but I think we think it. God, you must be smarter than me. You must know more than me. You must have a better plan than me. You must know that sending your son when you did, where you did, to whom you did, and you revealed yourself to the people that you did, and you did it in this way, you must have known that this is the way the message needed to be shared to capture the attention of humanity. That it didn't come with the power that I thought it would. 
didn't come with the wisdom that I thought it would. It didn't always answer every question. It didn't always answer every prayer. It didn't always show up and, and heal what I wanted healed or provide when I wanted him to provide. It didn't solve every riddle in my brain and make it all simple. I still wrestle with things. I still can't always connect the dots. But will I learn to trust God even when it doesn't always make sense? Will I learn to trust God even when I can't always see it? That's what Paul's challenging them to do. Because if you can see it all and you can know it all, where do you need faith? Think about that. If you can see God do everything you want him to do and all the power and glory and miracles and signs and wonders, what do you need faith for? If you have every question answered, every bit of knowledge you could do, and you've got it all figured out, you've got God in a box, what do you need faith for? We need faith. We need to take that step of trust at some point. There's a quote of a, a Christian apologist from 200 AD, so a ways back, named Tertullian of Carthage, and he he wrestled with the gospel and its validity and whether or not it sounded foolish to him at 200 AD. See, so this has been around for a while. We've been wrestling with these things for a long time. But this is what he says. No reasoning human would ever make up something like the crucified God-man and try to preach it around the world unless it were true. Kind of answers that idea of, yeah, we probably all could have come up with a better plan, a better gospel, a better truth that made more sense, a God that wasn't complicated, a God where you're not reading your Bible and like, what does that mean? Why is that in there? How do I explain that to my friends? You ever like hit that point with your unchurched, un far from God, non-Jesus people? You're like, read the Bible, except that one part, because I don't want to understand it. It's really confusing. Why did God show up in this way? Why doesn't God show up this way? Why doesn't God answer these questions? Blah, blah, blah. Why does it sound so foolish? No reasoning human would ever make up something like the crucified God man and then try to preach it around the world unless it were true. And I think that there are some of us today that are wrestling with the gospel. And it's complicated. Hence the title of this series. The truth can be complicated for us at moments to really grapple with. But I think that there are some of us today that need to just take that step of faith and saying, yes, I don't have every question, I don't have every sign, I don't have everything figured out. But there's a step of faith that I need to take today. Can I pray with you today? Yeah, let's pray, church. I want to pray for you. As I was preparing for this weekend, I really do, I, I, I believe that some of us are wrestling with these concepts and these ideas. And you want the gospel to be real. You want it to be as life-changing as you see in somebody else's life. I just want to pray for you. If you, you feel compelled today to take a step of faith, to saying yes to the gospel. If that's you today and you want to say yes to 
following Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. Would you just stand up? I know it seems crazy. And we live in a very privatized Christian world where we're going to have our secret little safe bubbles. But a step of faith into the unknown right now of saying, Sean, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to stand up and say, I want to say yes to following Jesus for the first time and the first time in a long time. I'm going to take a moment and pray. There's no one standing in the room right now, but I also, I don't know the context of every story represented online, so I'm going to pray for those internally wrestling with taking that step. Jesus, I thank you that you are with us every step of our journey. And you would love us so much that you meet us in our confusion, you meet us in our doubts, you meet us in our brokenness, and you bring life, you bring forgiveness, you bring clarity, you bring direction. Jesus, I pray that you would be the king of our lives. Forgive us of our, our mistakes of the past, and we pray for a fresh start today. And I pray, God, that we can be people. We can be people who are safe to walk alongside others in their journey to the truth. I want to I pray also, because I was, I was praying about this morning, and I, I do think, I do think that there's some of us that are wrestling with, what do I do when the world around me says the most dearest thing to me is, is garbage, is moronic, is foolish, and you've wrestled with how to respond. And as I was preparing for some thoughts today, I just wanted to, I wanted to pray for us in how do we respond to a world that says the gospel is crazy. And I thought about what Paul writes about here. And you can, you can stay in an attitude of prayer. You can look up, and I'm going to talk for a moment. So if you're bracing yourself for a prayer, it's coming. But I really did think about, you know, I know that predominantly the people that come I've said yes to Jesus. We're following Jesus. I want to create opportunity for those that feel far from God to say yes. But I also understand that there's some of us in here you've wrestled with, how do I respond? And you want to respond with power. How many of you get angry? You get feisty. You want to debate. You want to argue. You want to comment on every Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, so this is not directed at anybody. I'm deleted. I'm free. Hallelujah. But there is this heaviness that I think some of us might be carrying that I have to defend the gospel in every conversation with every person that pushes against it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them miracles. I'm going to bring them signs. I'm going to bring them wonders. And we're contending for this demonstrative Christianity to come and take over the world in a way 
that brings hostility and it brings some tension. And, and, and maybe you control yourself. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But you want to bring a defense with power. And you feel a responsibility, but you feel a pressure and a heaviness in that. And I, I want to pray for you because I don't know if anybody's ever been coerced into the gospel. I don't know if anybody's ever been debated into following Jesus. I could be wrong. But I don't think the kingdom of God is going to come through anger and being infuriated. And I don't want you to be carrying that heaviness throughout the week. It's not your job to force someone to Jesus. And I also think that along with the power side of it, there's some of us that feel this this, this responsibility that I have to convince everyone of the gospel. That you're not going to force them to it, but you're going to debate them through logic and reasoning, and you're going to catch them. You're going to answer. You got it. How many of us have a little, we've got our go-to default answers for every question. And we're going to reason them. We're almost going to intellectually trick them into believing in Jesus. And again, we feel stuck and we feel that responsibility and we feel like, oh, you've got a question. I got an answer. I can bring that answer to you. Let me answer that. I will bring you to Jesus through this. If I could just get this conversation, if I could get 10 minutes with you at Starbucks, I will solve all of your problems and we will get you into heaven, right? Like those booths at county fairs, like get to heaven in three questions. I like to go with them and just mess with them, but that's not very Christ-like. So. But I think socially, some of us, we're trying to, not through power, but through reason, we're trying to convince someone that they're wrong and we're right. How do we bring the gospel in the same manner that the gospel was brought to us? which is through, as Jesus embodied, weakness, sacrifice, and humility. Not through reason, not through anger, but through weakness, sacrifice, and humility. When you are confronted with people that think that the gospel is crazy talk, how do we bring sacrifice and humility into that situation instead of the opposite? You will not convince or trick or coerce or fight someone to following Jesus, but... I believe you can show them a gospel that says, I will serve you. I will lay my life down for you. I will walk alongside you. I will listen to your questions. I will ask you questions. I'll sacrifice for you. You see, that's the way the gospel was brought to humanity, through weakness, sacrifice, and humility. And I think when the gospel is called moronic, we are supposed to respond in the same way Jesus did. Because that response conquered death, conquered sin, conquered hell. And it's going to bring a message of truth and life to this world that they desperately are searching for. And they've already pigeonholed Christians into, you either want to fight me or you want to try to convince me. How disarming would it be if I said, I want to walk with you spiritually, metaphorically speaking, maybe literally, but I want to I walk with you. I want to sacrifice. I want to 
I want to serve you. I want to love you the way Jesus loves you. And we're going to talk more in depth in the coming weeks about representing the gospel in our world. But I really felt it important to take just an extra moment to pray for anybody that's feeling that pressure to fight for God in that way. So can I pray for anybody that, if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. You don't have to tell me, I want to fight, and I want to reason, and I want this. And I, but you just feel that, man. I, I got to defend God in my world, and I don't know how to do that, or I'm, I'm up against it, and I feel pressure. But, but you fill in the blank, however you're feeling. But is that you? I want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand? Some, you know, some of us are like, yeah, maybe, kind of. Can we pray? Is that all right? Can we bring the gospel in a way that we embody the heart of the gospel? And so if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. If, that's, if you're confused, frustrated, up against it, you're, you're, you're burdened, you're angry, you're feeling a heaviness, God, I just pray for those right now that are feeling that, that resonate with, with, with where that's at. And I pray that we would live out the gospel. We would live out what it means to be Christ crucified. Jesus, you died for us to bring us into reconciliation, to bring us into restored relationship. And I pray that we be people that do the same in this world. That we don't just talk about the gospel, but we live it with our lives. I pray for courage. I pray for boldness, but I also pray for a sensitivity to the moments that come. The Holy Spirit, you are the one speaking to people. Praise you, God. I pray for anybody that just feels bogged down and just feels that heaviness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you set them free right now. We aren't meant to carry that. Help us to see the world the way you see it and love the world the way you love it and to speak the truth the way you would speak the truth today, Jesus. We love you, we trust you, and we follow you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ellie, will you come out and send us into our world? If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.